Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 27th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Failings at the South Kerry CAM service. This is the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services have raised significant questions, not just in Kerry, but for parents right across the country and indeed their children were exposed to the serious risk of harm while they were under the care of just one doctor. Some of the problems included sedation, emotional and cognitive blunting, growth disturbance, serious weight changes, metabolic and endocrinal disturbance and psychological distress. Another 13 children were exposed to harm under the care of other doctors and there was clear evidence of significant harm to 46 children. Uh, this profoundly serious issue. Um, I've read uh, the, the executive um, report and the preliminary of it. It is shocking. It is very, very serious and it's unacceptable. And it represents a damning indictment of the service. The first principle of medicine is to do no harm. Children were harmed here uh, by a complete failure of clinical performance and oversight and the entire management of the service. Uh, As you have outlined, um, the treatment of 227 children was deemed by the report, which doesn't put any punches, to be fair, to the consultant, um, Sean Maskey is his name, who came over from the UK. 227 children, uh, the the treatment was deemed to be risky. Um, 46 children, the report says, were harmed significantly. And and it goes through um, what that harm means in terms of some children uh, putting on a lot of weight gain, um, sleepy during the day, raised blood pressure, production of, 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 of breast milk and so on. Um, through over-prescribing, uh, the lack of oversight. Um, and in my view, it, it demands a, a fundamental review, uh, not just of South Kerry, but of the overall situation pertaining to 
uh, child and adolescent mental health. That's the Taoiseach Micheál Martin speaking in the Dáil as Micheál Martin said profoundly serious and shocking. That's what happened in County Kerry. Let's speak uh, to Tanya Ward who's the Chief Executive Officer of the Children's Rights Alliance. Shocking and serious in Kerry but I suppose one of the questions uh, that people will be asking all over the country this morning Tanya is it isolated to County Kerry or is it something that should be of concern to people right across the country? I mean, I mean, that's right. I mean, this is one of the most damning reports published on mental health services for children. And everyone is asking, is this a national problem? Because I think the, the, the major issue coming up here is that there's clinical failure, management failure, oversight failure and administrative failure. And there is misuse of psychotropic medication for normal responses um, with devastating consequences for children. And in the Children's Rights Alliance on our helpline, we have received complaints from parents about the use and the overuse of drugs and medicating their children. Uh, We've also heard uh, similar complaints coming from uh, professionals working within the sector. So it doesn't surprise us that a review like this has picked up extremely poor and harmful practice in Kerry. I think the national audit is absolutely essential because there's no doubt, you know, young people listening to the news, parents listening to the news, will be very concerned about actually accessing CAMS now, knowing the absolute lack of oversight um, and the fact that, you know, a doctor can prescribe medication and it can be picked up, you know, in 2018, 2019, mm. but it hasn't been acted upon. There'll be huge concern about that. We're talking about problems uh, that uh, spanned over a four-year period undetected. That's right. I mean, and the, the harm caused, I mean, I was outraged, to be quite honest with you. I mean, sedation, emotional and cognitive blunting, growth disturbance, weight changes, psychological distress. I mean, young children going through drug withdrawal. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous that this actually happens. And, you know, for us, one of the main issues coming up has been that the services just aren't actually there for children. Mm. And what we're hearing now is that some of the services available are actually harmful to children and young people. And, Mike, this couldn't be coming at a worse time for young people I mean, Eurofound is a European Commission body and it published a report in November 2021 on the impact of COVID on young people's mental health. And it found that young people in Ireland, alongside those in the Mediterranean, actually had the poorest life satisfaction and mental health in Europe. And that was directly linked to pandemic responses. Um, And the fact remains that we don't actually have the services for young people who've just lived through this pandemic. And not only that, the services that are available in some parts of the country are are actually harmful. So, I mean, I want to see this to be the number one uh, priority for government, to to be quite honest with you. Um, I think the national audit Mm. is really welcome. I think the Taoiseach's really strong language is really welcome as well. But they also need to be moving ahead with other recommendations uh, in in that report. Like the the report says that was published yesterday, the working group should look at the future of CAMS, uh, these multidisciplinary teams that are available for young people Mm. 
They should do a consultation with them. But they should also actually just redesign the whole services for children and young people from zero uh, to 25 years. I take it that won't come as any surprise to you uh, that that is uh, the recommendation uh, because uh, I think uh, groups who advocate for children have been saying that for a long time. Users and parents have been saying it for a long time and people who've been listening to complaints about camps have been saying it for a very long time. Uh, We're talking about doctors who were not qualified to assess these children who had these children put into their care, misdiagnosed the problems in some cases uh, and certainly uh, prescribed the wrong medication in many cases. That, that's right. Um, and what they're also saying is that actually medication shouldn't have been prescribed in many of these cases as well. That, you know, there should have been psychological supports or other well-being supports put in place. And we would hear from, from young people about being referred to CAMS. And really all they needed was a couple of sessions with a, maybe a local uh, psychologist. But the psychologist wasn't available, so they end up being referred to CAMS. And I suppose once you go in that direction, you know, you know, there's a psychiatric team there, you know, there's a possibility of drugs being be, being uh, provided. And I actually think the bigger issue in Ireland is that we should be looking at the whole spectrum of what young people are experiencing. At one end, they're experiencing anxiety. Usually when mental health is, is starting to deteriorate, it starts with anxiety, emotional, poor emotional well-being. That can be in response to what they're going through in life. It could be bullied in school. They could be experiencing difficulties in school. It could be difficulties in home life. But then it starts deteriorating. And sometimes by the time they end up being referred to CAMS after a long waiting list, they often miss huge amounts of school. They withdraw from their community. They lose their friendships. And by the time they're at CAMS, you know, they're in a very difficult situation. And what appalls me really is that all these opportunities in the middle to intervene early and support these children and young people are being missed. And then when they're ending up with these multidisciplinary teams, they're not actually getting the support and treatment that they need. Mm. I mean, one of the things that comes through this report as well is it's just the lack of checks and balances. And something the government um, had said would happen into the future is there would be an independent advocacy service for children and young people accessing mental uh, health services. And that hasn't been established. And you can imagine in these cases, if this service was available, you know, at least the parents and the children would have been able to go to the service and say, look, the doctor is prescribing this medication should I go with this like you need to really support families Mm. in these situations when children are very vulnerable Okay well why is that service not available and why are the services that are available substandard is another question because there's been complaints about CAMS not just from those who work with or interact with the system but from those who work in the system over a very long period of time and there has to be political accountability in all of this as well I think, Tanya, in that mental health services in general have always been the Cinderella of the health service in this country. And then when it comes to services for children, uh, we really are scraping the bottom of the pit, it would seem. I think so. I mean, the, the big issue in this area is just a lack of qualified staff. And if you talk to some private providers, basically they've improved the terms and conditions to be able to attract the right staff uh, in, into these roles. Um, and the other piece coming through is the lack of, you know, senior clinical staff in this space as well. Again, I think Ireland needs to be working harder to attract the right people with the right skills into these roles. And it also needs to be looking at the professional level. How do we train up enough people to play out, to, to, to work in these spaces and roles? 
But here's the thing. If we were intervening earlier in children's lives, um, there wouldn't be all this kind of reliance on CAMS to resolve everything. If we had psychologists, for example, within the school system, if we had local psychologists available in local communities where children could go to the local uh, health centre, um, if we had more of a focus on emotional well-being at the local level, um, we wouldn't see the crisis that we're seeing uh, at the CAMS level if as we well. we didn't have these long waiting lists for a first appointment. That, that's right. Um, and the other thing I think that comes through is the really poor administration. And this has happened before. I mean, we've seen this in, there's been a few uh, reports of children who've died in the care of the, the care system. And in some of those cases, you know, letters going to uh, CAMS were misdirected or not, weren't responded in time. And then the young person might have taken their life in, in mm. the meantime. I mean, that kind of stuff, you, you can't have poor administration when it comes to very vulnerable young people. You have to be absolutely on top of it. I mean, any time a young person accesses your service, there should be no wrong door. Mm. There should be a response um, and they should be referred correctly to whoever it is. They shouldn't just be battered away or their letter shouldn't just disappear in, in, in a pile and of it's, letters. It's so horrible that we're having this conversation this morning because that is apparently what is uh, the situation. Uh, this is, is a story, I have to tell you, that I just hate. Uh, I mean, you hate it for the people who are directly involved in it, uh, but perhaps some good will come out of it in Kerry. Perhaps uh, it'll be a great thing in time to come because uh, it'll see some of uh, the systemic change that's needed in providing mental health services for children in this country. But you have to hate this story at the moment because it's not just a story for people listening to us this morning who have had children in crisis. Families who've gone through crisis may have come out of those crises uh, because uh, they've gone through the CAM system, uh, may still be in crisis, uh, despite having gone through the CAM system. But regardless, uh, a lot of people have put a lot of effort and time into trying to help somebody who's at the centre of those crises. And they're left this morning scratching their heads saying, where are we at? Have we done the right thing? Have they got the right care? Have they got the right diagnosis? Are they on medication that they should be on or shouldn't be on? And they're very, very big questions for people to face into now. And it'll take some time to answer them, Tanya. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's a massive loss of confidence now uh, in the service as a whole. And the other thing I think that strikes me as well is that I think there'll be anger ripping through the people that work within the services because they have been crying out for years for better resources, better oversight and more attention by the National um, Health Service. I mean, I, I think throughout the country there'll be national anger emerging because unfortunately it takes a report demonstrating serious harm to children before the whistleblowers are, are listened to and before the parents who've been calling this out are listened to. And quite frankly, all the kind of surveys directly with young people have been calling out these issues as well. And it's deeply unfortunate that it's taking something like this to get the national attention. All right, Tanya, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much indeed uh, for talking uh, to us uh, this morning. Tanya Ward is uh, the Chief Executive of the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, the cost of living is already through the roof and inflation is set to skyrocket. The cost of living uh, is rising, uh, that we're seeing inflation um, at a level that we haven't seen in a very long time. uh, And that is impacting on people's household incomes. Uh, A lot of people are struggling with those rising bills, particularly um, energy bills, uh, petrol, diesel, electricity. 
Uh, so what we're doing is action in a number of areas. You know, there are increases in pay. Um, minimum wage just went up by 3%. Um, most people in most workplaces, not all, but most in most workplaces will get a pay increase this year and that will help. Uh, and where employers can afford pay increases, they should do them. Uh, and the government certainly is in relation to uh, public sector pay. Uh, we do have the welfare pension and tax package kicking in this month. Reductions in income tax, increases in pensions and welfare on top of a few allowance increase uh, there before Christmas. Um, there's also um, uh, measures to cap increases in rents at 2% to freeze childcare uh, to introduce this 100 euro discount to electricity bills. So, you know, there are lots of different areas where government is helping both to increase incomes and contain costs. And indeed, that 100 euro off your electricity bill is going to be worth 113 euro 50 to you. That's just some of the things uh, that government is trying to do to offset the rate of inflation. But is it enough? Let's speak to Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with the Consumers Association of Ireland. Good morning to you, Dermot, and thanks for joining us on the programme as always. Uh, things are bad and they are undoubtedly going to get a whole lot worse. You've been looking at some of uh, the increases thus far. What have you discovered? Uh, morning, Michael. Yeah, well, uh, it's been pointed out that we're, we're in a, an unusual position, and we are because describe the figures as staggering. We're at the highest level of, of, of um of, of, of increase in, in a great number of years. But to put it into real terms and real money, many people, for example, would put 20 euro, let's say, of fuel into their car exactly a year ago. Today, to get that same amount of fuel, they have to spend 26 euro 49. So that's, the, that's, that's an increase just on 20 euro to get an amount of fuel. Right. If you look to the situation where, whether it be either electric um, costs or gas, and many people will be using both. But either one, the average bill has gone up by approximately 40%. So if you were spending 100 euro a month, it's now 140 euro a month. If you're spending 200 euro a month, it's eye-wateringly expensive, and people are starting to feel it now. It's been hitting over the last number of, certainly a couple of months, but the bills are only starting to come now. And there's, there's literally bill shock in a number of ways. And if you take that then across to the all-day, everyday, average basket of food that we all have across bread, milk, tea, coffee, butter, cheese, all of those elements, that basket, no matter how you try, has gone up a minimum of 4%. And in some cases, depending on the, the item of food you're buying, it could be as much as 8 to 9%. Right. So uh, something's got to give. Mm. And, and, and uh, listening to what um, the Tonish has said there, yeah, you can understand it increases in pay in public sector. But there's a, there's a fairly significant amount of people who are not going to get an increase in their pay. Um, they're not going to, to the 100 euro help with, with, with the ESB and that the energy bill will, will help, but it's not going to put a massive dent in the bill. Mm. Yeah, well, some people will get it and will wonder why they're getting it because they won't be worried about €100 Euro because uh, they don't have such worries. But for those uh, who are worried about increasing bills, I think uh, you're talking about between five and €700 a year in uh, five hundred and €700 Euro this year in the increase in energy at your home alone. Before you get into petrol and diesel, uh, there was a, a survey from Kantar in the papers the other day uh, which said suggests that we're going to pay €800 Euro extra on average for our groceries this year. It's an awful lot of money. Uh, so generally speaking, you're talking about a 1000 2000 €3,000 extra just to stand still this year for households around the country. 
And when you boil that down, I mean, it's, it's such a big figure, even trying to take it on a monthly basis and say, look, we'll, we'll try and manage the budget. It's, it's, I, I won't say it's impossible, but it's very close to it. Um, and this is the difficulty because many, many years ago when we, we suffered this level of inflation, the knock-on, the natural knock-on effect was that business passed on their costs because they couldn't absorb them. And the natural follow-on to that was consumers said, right, there are certain bills that we must pay. We can't fall into debt with our mortgage. So they started to cut back on energy costs, on heating. Um, they started to cut back on a variety of other products that they would have purchased. So we're going to see a very significant drop in the level of purchases. And the interesting, mm. the key point you've just made it there, and that is that this point was made by the governor of the central bank earlier this week. This does not affect everybody. There are quite a number of people who will be able to absorb it, and they're wondering what all the panic is about. The panic is about those on low pay, low income, um, who are already stretched with outrageous levels of rent, um, who are struggling to, they can't even save any longer to get out of the heat they're in. And that's the problem. Yeah, that and this, this could be a tipping point for some people. And uh, if not, the saving grace is mortgage interest rates. Absolutely. Um, and, and this is why, you know, there's so many focus, there's so much of a focus on so many different areas. I understand the difficulty. I would not like to have the, the job of trying to resolve this, but it's got to be done in measured ways and, and take, I suppose, those who are most at risk. I mean, again, as I pointed out, increases by great public sector operations, great, um, a cap on, on rent increases, fantastic. But there are other elements that need to be done. And the one that we've been trying to point to, and we're not on our own, we've been doing this since the start, but the one area that affects everybody, Michael, is the fact that they pay tax on everything and mm. in everything, mm. and I'm specifically talking about VAT. Yeah, and of course that uh, does go to help uh, grow the government's coffers, uh, because if we have to pay more uh, in uh, the cost of heating our homes, uh, that means more VAT for the government. If we have to pay exactly. more in petrol and diesel, that means more VAT to the government. If we have to pay more for our groceries, that means more VAT for the government. Uh, and you're calling for emergency measures to be put in place to reduce some of the VAT rates. We are. And, and the, 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 the two specific ones, the, the, the first one is to, to focus on VAT. There, there are opportunities that have been examined before. It was done for the hospitality sector. It can work. There just needs to be two elements to it. One, look at reducing the VAT, even for an, as an interim measure. It will help mm. because we're consistently being told that we will get out of this. That's fine. But we're not going to get out of it this year or next year. It's probably going, going to be into 2024. Mm. So we need, need to put that measure in place. But it needs to be clarified that it must be passed on. Um, because th th there was a problem before with this where those who did get the, the benefits said, well, look, we need it, we're not passing it on. It must be passed on at the mm. price. So that, that's, a, that's a task to be, to be dealt with. And the other one is that we do believe that there needs to be an interim review of welfare payments, all welfare payments. And I, I made the point there the, the, the other day, and we've been trying to make it that, look, we acknowledge the five euro that, that, that I, 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 I'm not trying to... to yeah to be nasty about it and say it's a token five euro. To five euro means a lot to people on a very low income. Mm. But it's two it was two percent. And the point that we're trying to make is it needs to be reviewed right now because that two percent has been completely eliminated in value for those who received it when you've got 
almost all products of every kind up by at least five to six and sometimes more percent. Mm. So that L- needs to be addressed. Long gone before it even arrived. I yeah. think uh, maybe uh, pensioners living a- alone might have been quids up or broke even from the increases in the budget. But that's it because they'd have got 13 euro all in because of uh, the increase in uh, the pension and the home heating allowance and the living allowance when you combine them. Uh, but that five euro long gone and that's it accepted by everybody before you even start. Uh, the problem in reducing VAT uh, is a European problem, a European directive, according to the government, because you have to have a standard rate of tax and then to reduce rates of tax. And that's what we have at the moment, 23%, 13.5% and 9%. But we have sort of juggled them around a little bit in the past, as you say. We reduced the hospitality yeah. to 13.5%, from 135 to 9%. And I take it that's what you were referring to, because there was a lot of complaints at the time that those uh, savings to the industry weren't passed on. Uh, but we also did it uh, in 2020 when we created a, a job stimulus and reduced the 23% rate to 21%. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a history of it. It's possible to do it. And... I mean, I understand the quoting of the, of the fact that we have EU laws and regulations, absolutely. But on numerous occasions, when there is a crisis, and this is a very real crisis, certainly for Ireland, and we're not quite alone now. There are other countries who are struggling with the, the phenomenal cost yeah. of, of energy, etc., but not at the levels that we are, because we're, a, we're a, an island nation. Everything has to be delivered to us, um, and it, it, everything is costing significantly more, and worse, we've been involved with Brexit which has changed the pricing structure for a lot of products for us. So, yes, there is a history. It can be done. And the European Commission are not deaf to, to, to opening their minds and listening to a problem at a, at a, at a member state level and saying, fine, if mm. it's a short-term measure... We'll, we'll, we'll consider it and we'll agree with it, provided you... And we, I mean, we've, we've mm. in fairness... Well, there's different rates across Europe at the same time. I, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm misunderstanding it. I think you have to have three rates, a standard rate and two reduced rates at maximum. Uh, but in Hungary, uh, the uh, standard rate is 27% uh, compared to our 23%. You go to Luxembourg and it's 17%. Uh, 18% in Malta, uh, 19% in Germany. Uh, so, I mean, we don't have to stick to this 23% figure it would seem. No, we don't. Um, and and it, it is an area where, in fairness, if necessary, we could to some small degree cherry-pick, and by that I mean that there may be uh, sale elements, for example, something like the duty on, on the sale of a home, perhaps, yeah. uh, or a mortgage. There are elements that might be able to be separated. But generally, when it comes to food, petrol, um, all of the products that we, 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 we engage with, energy costs and every element of provision, that that needs some reduction, some alleviation to help. Because exactly as you pointed out, the key element of this is that since all of these bills have been increasing, the take at the government um, strategic level in terms of money coming in has escalated at the same rate. So there's, 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 there's room there to, 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 to benefit and pass on benefit to citizens. And I'm not just talking about consumers because we're all in this together, including business. And, and there mm. needs to be something to save 
all of us so that we can continue to support business, support jobs, um, and not run into the situation where we start to see businesses closing, particularly after after uh, the difficulties of COVID. And have you any thoughts on the €100 Euro or the €113.50 being knocked off for the electricity bills for everybody? This universal gift, if you like, uh, to rich and poor, whether uh, you're on welfare or whether you're a hospital consultant, a judge... Uh, an airline boss or Robert Watt uh, the general secretary in the Department of Health who's on a salary of 294,920 euro I mean you'd have to imagine it won't make much difference to Mr Watt's life if he gets the 100 euro or not no, not even remotely. Um, again, that comes back to what the, the governor of the central bank said, that, that this doesn't affect everybody in the same way. And I have to, I mean, you've kind of put, you've, you've, you've led me well into it because the point is, it should. this was not a one-size-fits-all. It, it should never have been. And I'm rather disappointed that the Commission for Regulation of Utilities, the CRU, have said that they, they, they couldn't support, you know, if you like, not paying it to everybody because it's, it's too much of a, an IT and a technical difficulty and it would take testing etc uh, you know it's an awful shame because there are I, I already have met a number of people who've been plain and honest and said don't need this don't want it can't stop it um, so you know that's that's ridiculous mm. It really is. It's 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 a bad way of managing a. I understand the positivity behind it, and it, it was well intentioned. And I, I particularly like the fact that somebody woke up to the fact that if you gave a hundred, it included that. So they've added the fact. So I like that. But that has kind of accentuated the ridiculousness of paying it to people who don't need it even remotely. And does that and does that mean that you think it would be better if people got it in April instead of March? If yes, it took if I it took longer. Yeah, okay. why not? Okay. Get it right. Yeah. And, and mm. potentially, if that's the case, there might be a potential to pay a little bit more to those who particularly need it. OK, maybe people will share their thoughts with us on that, if they'd be willing to wait uh, a month to get the money they need rather than it going to everybody, whether they need it or not. We leave it on that question, Dermot. Thank you indeed for joining thank us, you, as always. Dermot Jewell is a policy and council advisor with the Consumers Association of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the National Development Plan is to allocate billions of euro, over 5 billion euro, to transport infrastructure Ireland in order to build roads across the country. In the new NDP launched in October 21, just gone, approximately 5.1 billion is earmarked for new national road projects to 2030. And that's certainly, certainly a positive that will enable many projects to move on. It certainly is 5.1 billion euro. Uh, But uh, we read that some of that money will not be available for some time. As a result, eight major priority projects have been put on hold. Uh, One of them is the N24. We were listening to Damien English. The Minister was asked about the N24 and why it's being postponed in the Dáil the other evening. In relation to to, to progressing this year and the funding allocated for this year, due to the fact that the greater portion of the NDP funding for road projects becomes available in the second half of the decade, this means there's a a constraint on the funding available for new projects or to bring projects forward like the N24 or to progress them in this year, 2022. So that's off uh, the cards uh, this year and it seems until the second half of uh, the decade, uh, which is from 2025 
Onwards, uh, let's uh, speak uh, to Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, Darren O'Rourke. I'm not sure what interest there is locally in the N24, although I'm sure some people will be very interested in seeing it progress. Uh, it's a priority road. It's one of eight that have been postponed as such because uh, Transport Infrastructure Ireland is saying it can't do the work with the $1.1 billion out of that $5 billion that it has for the first half of this decade. Yeah, that's the case, Michael. And I think um, that headline figure um, of, of five billion, just to put it into context, there, there is a long list of roads, um, uh, over 30 roads that are on the list. And if you remember the NDP, they added further roads when they couldn't make their minds up on, on which roads to, to cut. They actually added roads um, so there's a long list of over 30 roads. Uh, one of those roads, the N20, is estimated to cost uh, two or three billion euros. So, so that's the the scale of of uh, works uh, that you would be uh, fit to do. So, so. Um, there's probably um, uh, uh, fa- there, there's no doubt far far uh, 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 more projects on the list than mm. there is money available. Um, and in fact, uh, of the 1.1 billion euros that it's available be- between now and 2025, um, and we're just at the start of 2022, um, 800 million of that is already committed. So just to to give people a sense of that, it, it is very very significant. Um, it's welcome, I suppose, that, that there are, you know, there aren't local roads in Mead and Loud mm. that have been cut at this stage. Uh, there is the, the, the N2 at Clontibber to the border. But to be very clear, um, the funding is not there to progress the roads in, in, uh, in Mead that have been committed to in the, uh, in the national So the plan, the plan up to the end of the decade is over £5 billion, but as things stand, when you exclude what already has been committed to, where funding has been committed to, there's about £300 million left. Absolutely, right. that's that's the case. Yeah, and and okay. so when we have a, a scenario there where you know an additional million euros c- committed to the Slane bypass before before Christmas, and it's welcomed as as great news, um, it needs to be put in context. That will you know it will move the project on, and I know there is an oral hearing, but the funding simply is not there um, uh, committed by government to deliver on that project, nor on the 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 Kilmain Kilmoon Cross the Rat Roundabout, mm. uh, which is actually at, a, at an earlier stage, and this or, is or, or, or the RD bypass, uh, 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 and there's not even talk of the Northern Cross route. Uh, but when we look at these eight projects, uh, these are top of the list uh, in terms of priority, are they? So, so they're on that long list. Um, uh, seven of them, by my reader, are at, al- at early planning stage, which is where the the N2 rat roundabout to Kilmoon mm. Cross. So we presume they've been knocked off because the strength of the business case isn't as as strong as as, as the N2. Um, but but the the N2 Clontibber to the border is actually at planning and design stage, which is concerning because that's exactly where the N2 RD to Castle Blaney is, where the N2 Slane Bypass is and where the the N52 RD bypass are. So so that makes you think that there is the possibility that uh, on further review that other projects uh, might be knocked off. Um, you know, you, you would have thought that only projects at the very early okay. stage might be might be lost at this stage. But I, I should have uh, mentioned that uh, this story uh, is carried by the Irish Times today, which says that these eight projects, uh, which, it's, which it describes as eight major projects, have all been postponed because the money isn't there. Transport Infrastructure Ireland has told the Irish Times the money isn't there. Uh, 
and the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan, says this reflects the need to rapidly decarbonise to meet national carbon emissions reduction targets by considering public transport and active travel, cycling and walking options before roads. So, if that's the case and none of our local uh, dreams are on this list, what hope is there for the uh, Slane Bypass or, or Kilmoon Cross or RD or anything else for that matter? So, so I would be very concerned, Michael, at this juncture about the prospect of, of them being delivered. Certain, not There is no chance, in my opinion, of them being, being delivered or any progress being made in real terms, in terms of breaking ground uh, before 2026. And, after, and even after that, I would say at this stage, very, very limited chance of progress, uh, particularly on a number of those projects um, b- b- by the end of this decade. But, but that reflects the, the priority of government. And they've stated it clearly, and you You've you've, you've, uh, mentioned Eamon Ryan there, and the whole of government approach is to prioritise active travel and public transport and to deprioritise roads. And and, uh, um, the difficulty I have in relation to that, uh, Michael, is that we see no improvement in active travel or public transport. And, you know, on the one hand, we see no improvement in terms of the bus network and no in terms, we don't see the delivery of of, uh, cycling networks to the scale that that was committed. We certainly don't see... Well, instead of of spending the million uh, on the same bypass, if that's only a pipe dream, would it not be better to spend it on buses? But, but in fairness, Michael, they're not spending the money that they say they have committed to on buses or... But that's on what I mean. In, in, instead of wasting money on a project that's only a pipe dream, uh, and I say the same bypass because it's one we can all identify with, uh, but whether it's that or Kilmoon Cross or RD or whatever, if these projects are not going to be built, if they're just wishful thinking, why spend any money on them if you could use that money and buy more buses? Well, I think that the point, Michael, is rather that there is a complete lack of coherence in terms of the, the government's approach in relation to this, because in fact, they've got, they say they have frameworks uh, for for priority investment, but actually, even when they do that, when they say we're going to prioritise investment in public transport and active travel, look at the, the public transport network. They, they are, they're delaying the delivery of the Navin rail line, for example. They're refusing to reduce fares that people might actually actually be able to afford a train from Stamullen or Laytown. Um, they're they're, they're, they're uh, delaying the implementation of the, the, the rural bus network, the Connecting Ireland. They committed €5 million Euros to it, just 10% of the, the budget. It's going to be delay, delay, delay in relation to that. People do not have the option of, of, of a, a reliable public transport network in Mead or Loud, and at the same time, there is no funding there for the roads that they ha- they're forced to drive on on a daily basis. OK, I no hope of uh, these local projects ever coming about by the sounds of things. We leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Darren O'Rourke is a Sinn Féin TD for Mead East and is party spokesperson on transport. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, standing against uh, direct uh, provision or STAD is a coalition of eight organisations which include NASC, Amnesty International Ireland, Crosscare Refugee Project, Culture, the Immigrant Council of Ireland, the Irish Refugee Council, Massey, that's the movement of asylum seekers in Ireland, and Duras. We're joined uh, this morning to hear a little bit about the objectives of uh, this coalition by John 
John Lannan, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Duris. A very good morning to you, John, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. The eight organisations have come together to bring about an end to direct provision. That's in the government's thinking already, isn't it? Um, It is. There's a stated commitment to end direct provision by the end of 2024, and essentially this coalition is aiming to ensure that they live up to that commitment. There are concerns about progress so far. You know, we haven't seen a lot of positive movement towards ending direct provision yet. And we we want to ensure that um, they do live up to that commitment. You know, we want all emergency centres closed as a matter of priority. We want a reduction in the processing times for international protection applicants and for, for their appeals. We want to ensure that the HICWA is given a mandate for independent inspections of centres. But ultimately, we want the entire system ended. We want it dismantled and we want it replaced by a human rights compliance system for mm. reception and accommodation of asylum seekers. Okay, I think it's broadly accepted uh, that people have been asked to live in inhumane conditions over two decades. Uh, it's over 20 years uh, since the system of uh, direct provision was brought into play where people seeking asylum in this country were given board and uh, food, uh, board and shelter uh, and a weekly allowance. Uh, but uh, if you were to close these uh, centres, if you were to close Mosny, for example, where would all of those people go? Well, there there are a number of aspects to the government's responsibility here, and one of them is certainly to provide housing. There's a responsibility to provide housing for everybody who's resident in the state, and that would include asylum seekers. We know we have a crisis at the moment, but we also know that government have made the commitment under the white paper to put in place alternative accommodation for asylum seekers and whether that's working with the local authorities, whether it's working with approved housing bodies or, or others, um, they, this is something that they, that they need to do. And, and it is true, you know, it's very difficult for people to move out of direct provision right now because mm. they're at the bottom of the ladder when it comes to access to accommodation. It's, it's difficult to get a place where you can live where you can then bring your family who also need to be reunified with you, fleeing from whatever oppressive regime they're living in. And and often people find themselves still living in cramped one-bedroom apartments rather than being able to properly move on with their lives after they've been granted their papers here. It it really is incredible when you think about some of uh, the lives uh, that uh, some of uh, the people living in this country have led so far. I mean, if you uh, take some of uh, the more obvious examples, somebody fleeing uh, the terror of war in Syria and the long journey to Ireland to seek asylum uh, so that they and their family uh, can feel secure in some sense and so that asylum is granted to them. They have refugee status, uh, they can live and work in this country like anybody else but they can't afford to uh, and can't afford to leave a uh, refugee asylum centre. In, indeed. I mean, the, the problems begin with um, living in direct provision and living in direct provision for years um, in, in many cases. You know, we, we, we know that... Um, there are people that have lived, you know, there are over three and a half thousand people that have lived in direct provision for two years or longer. In many cases, those centres are in remote locations, so it's difficult, if not impossible, to access work. Um, asylum seekers have not been allowed in the past to um, hold driving licences, so a car 
is 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 out of the question and and access to education is also extremely difficult so it it's it's like being suspended in in a limbo it's it's a forced idleness that people have to endure for for many years which mm. has a negative impact on their mental health as well and this is the system that was put in place in 1999 by the government at the time then on a temporary basis so mm. it was only supposed to be in existence for six months but here we are 21 years later and we've still got direct provision we've still got a system of institutionalised, forced institutionalised living for people who are fleeing from persecution and torture and it's time that that ended. And we don't really know about the conditions that people are living under and that's why you want inspections to take place. Absolutely. We know that there is an inspection regime that they they check certain aspects of the cooking facilities and the the building but when it comes to the the well-being when it comes to the safety of people living in the system when it comes to access to the services and the supports that they need there isn't any real oversight of what's being provided there are national standards in place we have obligations under any new reception conditions directive but there is no adequate insurance that those standards are being met. And we know that they're not being met. We've spoken to, we engage with people who are living in this abhorrent system and we know that the standards are not being adhered to. So this is making life even more unbearable for many people in direct provision. Mm, Vulnerable people who are possibly being taken advantage of uh, and uh, there's the potential for that when there is the potential for people to take advantage of other people quite often it is what happens and there have been a lot of concerns about uh, the health and safety of people living in direct uh, provision centres in particular child protection concerns I think. Absolutely, and the Ombudsman for Children um, has has spoken out on on a number of occasions on this. They have done reports into um, this and and shown that um, for children who are spending their formative development years living in these institutionalised settings, there is an impact, there's an ongoing impact and, you know, there there, there are practical um, aspects to this, so where a child, for example, is living in a direct provision centre, they may not have a place to do their homework. They may not be getting adequately nourished because the food is, un- is unsuitable for, for them. They they can't bring children or friends over to, to play with them. Now, I know that wasn't possible during COVID times, but at other times, you know, the normal routines that children would expect um, and their families would expect them to be able to go through in order to develop appropriately are not an option for children living in direct provision. Mm. Terrible things in themselves, but of course it can be a lot more serious. Uh, people are in desperate situations uh, in some circumstances. Uh, some children uh, being forced into criminality, uh, others being pimped into prostitution. In, indeed, and and again, you know, we, we have obligations here in Ireland to ensure that anybody who is, first of all, um, has been trafficked into the state um, is 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 adequately supported. Um, the vulnerabilities that that people have within the system in direct provision leaves them exposed again in some cases to being to further exploitation or to being exploited again in in similar or, or different ways. So again, the state has obligations mm. to ensure that people who are in particularly vulnerable situations like that are adequately supported. Now. The, the government has introduced um, 
vulnerability assessments on a pilot basis for people who are entering the country seeking um, asylum. But again, we want to see more assurance of the follow-up and and the adequate outcomes and measures put in place to respond to those vulnerabilities that are identified at the early stages. And we're not confident that that's happening now. We have heard of situations where people who should not have had to share rooms with with others and where that would have been identified in a vulnerability assessment, but that it was still happening. So... So, so th- there's a lot of work to be done here yet. Well, there's eight groups, uh, all of which have proved uh, to be very strong in terms of advocating uh, for people who have uh, come to this uh, country seeking uh, asylum over the years. Uh, and as a coalition force, uh, I think uh, we'll be hearing a lot from uh, STAD, uh, as uh, you call it, uh, that's standing against direct provision over the coming weeks and months for that matter. John, thank you for joining us this morning. Pleasure to talk to you again. That's uh, John Lannan, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Duras and one of the eight founding members of the STAD coalition. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Isn't it incredible to think of the amount of the people uh, that uh, St Vincent de Paul helps in any one year? In 2021, our regional offices received just over 191,000 requests for help and almost 70% of those requests were from families with children. And that means there's an awful lot of children who are living in poverty in this country. As well as the individual consequences of living in poverty, the failure to address poverty also brings significant societal costs. In recent research published by SVP and carried out by Dr. Michal Collins of UCD, it is estimated that the state spends 4.5 billion euro every year dealing with the consequences of poverty on people's lives. To put this in context, this is greater than the respective budgets of housing, justice, transport and agriculture. It's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Uh, that's uh, Tricia Kylty, who's Head of Social Justice with uh, the Society of St Vincent de Paul. Tricia is on the line with us. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that research. Four and a half billion euro, uh, which could be spent otherwise on the causes of poverty rather than trying to help people who end up in poverty. Good morning, Michael. Yeah, that's right. I suppose that the research was published um, in 2020 and it looked at the cost of poverty to the public purse. So how much of state expenditure is allocated to dealing with the ways that poverty damages people's lives? So, for example, 1.2 billion is spent every year um, addressing some of the health outcomes that people who are living in poverty experience, both in terms of their physical and mental health. So addressing poverty and preventing poverty in the first place would lead to much greater savings to the state in the long term. I suppose that really just underlines how important it is, particularly to address poverty among children and intervening early to ensure that children aren't left with the damaging consequences of poverty uh, throughout their life. That must have been of great interest to the politicians because we were listening to you there speaking uh, to members of uh, the Oireachtas Children's Committee. Two and a half billion euros saved off the health bill uh, would be a significant savings. Absolutely, and I suppose that would free up uh, public funds to, to deal with other um, other public par- policy priorities as well. And I suppose, you know, from our point of view, there's also very, very strong moral um, reasons to address poverty because we see the real lived experience of it every day in terms of our work in communities and the real toll it takes on parents, on children, um, 
because if you're going day to day, week to week, um, not knowing how much you're going to have to put food on the table, that really takes a big toll on people's physical and mental health. So as well as the very strong moral arguments for addressing poverty, we now have very good, strong data to show the economic benefits of addressing it as well. I take it things are going to get worse before they get better because we're living through the worst inflation in two decades. We haven't really had any inflation for 20 years and uh, we're seeing now a a situation where over the course of uh, the next year, depending on your household, it's going to cost anywhere between one and three thousand euro more in order just to survive at the same level you did last year. Yeah, and that's a real big concern for us at the moment and we're really seeing the impact of that as well in terms of the calls we're getting. We saw a 24% increase in calls for help with gas and utility. Utilities just in the run-up to Christmas. Um, So families are really, really struggling because when you're on a very low income, you have little or no room in your budget to accommodate any kind of price increases, however big or small they are. So if we're looking at 1,500, 2,000 euro being added to the average uh, budget, that's going to put real pressure on households. And we, we could potentially see a worsening of poverty because people are just going to have to cut back um, or go without. And, you know, that's something that we're seeing already in terms of the households that we're, we're supporting as well. Yeah. And for children as well, child poverty could potentially uh, deepen much more significantly unless it's seen as a priority by government and action is taken across. Yeah. all government departments as well. Well, when there isn't the money in the house to pay the electricity bill or uh, to uh, get to work or if it's a choice between buying petrol to put in the car to get to work and something else has to go, something else does have to go and something has to give. So what kind of consequences uh, does uh, that level of poverty have on children who are living in low-income households? So in our experience, the one area that families have discretion over is their food budget. So when, you know, yet there's a bill to pay or you need to put petrol in the car, food is the one area that people cut back on. And that's why one in three calls to SVP relate to food poverty. And I suppose in our experience, parents do the best to mitigate the impacts of poverty on their children's lives. So that often means parents skipping meals so their children can eat. Um, and that's that's the reality for, for many people at the moment. And I suppose when it comes to heating, we're seeing um, a lot of families who are, you know, uh, going to bed earlier so that they can get under the, the covers of their bed so they're warm, um, you know, shutting off the, the heating at, at different points in the day, maybe only allocating 30 minutes of heat a day. And, and that's the very, very real choices people are faced with at the moment unfortunately Um, and I suppose that's just really again underlines why we need to see uh, ending poverty as a priority uh, for this government Mm. as well. Cornflakes for dinner that sort of thing is it Tricia? I mean we heard a a lot of that uh, back uh, at the start of the decade uh, such uh, with uh, the crash in, in 2008 uh, and for uh, the few years after that when people really were struggling. Absolutely, yeah, and and I think um, we're seeing that emerge again. But we know, you know, certain policies do work. So, for example, for children, we've seen the huge benefit of school meals and particularly the provision of hot school meals as well. You know, that can make a huge difference to families when they know that the the lunch will be uh, catered for in the school that takes pressure off family budgets. So there is um, measures there that we can implement to make life um easier for people in poverty and I suppose 
giving people hope that they can find a way out. And that's really, again, about ensuring that people have access to good quality employment, that our social welfare system reflects the real cost of living and that we're investing in public services um, like childcare, housing and transport so people aren't paying out of pocket huge hugely out of pocket for those very essential services as well. So there's the types of policies that we need to see action on if if we want to end this kind of situation. Yeah, because they're they're, so many people are in. They really are basics, aren't they? I mean, we're talking about fundamentals. We're talking about sustenance uh, for children. When you talk about heat and food, uh, you really are talking about uh, some of uh, the most fundamental issues uh, that we would hope wouldn't be an issue in a, a country like this, because this is a very, very wealthy country, whether some people are aware of it or not. Absolutely. And, you know, I think it, it just, again, goes back to what is the cost? What is the cost to the children growing up in poverty, the impact that has directly on them? And what is the cost to society at, at large as well of not addressing it in the first place? So really it just underpins why we need to invest in these public services and these supports because these are services and supports everybody relies on not just people on low incomes and people in poverty and it makes good sense to have strong social infrastructure and a strong safety net that people rely on at different points in their lives as well. Mm. Cahill in Mornington has been in touch with us and he's been listening to people call for increases in the fuel allowance and uh, he wishes he could add his voice to those calls but uh, he doesn't qualify for a fuel allowance. Uh, he's on the carer's allowance uh, and he says uh, that he's applied many times over but he, he's only told uh, that uh, he doesn't qualify uh, and obviously things are, are difficult for him. There's a lot of people in that type of limbo as well, I take it, Tricia. Absolutely, we would hear that regularly. Um, the fuel allowance is a good form of support but it's very means-tested and it doesn't reach everybody who may be struggling to pay for their heat and their light so we've been calling, you know, every year in our in our pre-budget submissions that eligibility for that would be expanded so that people um, like Cahill would be able to access that support because it's really vital for people as well who are struggling um, with energy costs. OK. Uh, I take it you support uh, the idea of adjusting uh, the VAT rates uh, so that prices could come down generally uh, for some of uh, the things that people are struggling to afford at the moment? Yeah, I suppose we're, we're um, advocating the government on a number of measures to help uh, alleviate some of the pressure in relation to energy costs. The one thing that we're actually focused on particularly is the need for a utility debt relief fund because a lot of people had built up debt over the COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe they were out of work on reduced incomes. They were consuming more gas and electricity from being home more. A lot of people got bill shocks. Um, so there's a lot of people not only struggling with the extra cost of energy, but also trying to deal with significant debt. So having a debt relief fund would help those households significantly to get back on track. And I suppose we're also calling for maybe an emergency top-up payment for people on low incomes as well. And then I suppose in the longer term, it's just ensuring that our social welfare system and our minimum, minimum wage is benchmarked against the real costs that households are facing as well. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment, Tricia. Thanks, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Much appreciated. Tricia Coilty is Head of Social Justice with St. Vincent de Paul. Now, thanks uh, to Tony in Louth, who's in touch with us, about the €100 Euro that you're going to have knocked off your electricity bill, whether you need €100 Euro or not. Uh, the reason they say that they're giving it to everybody on a universal basis is that it would take too long. It would delay paying it to those who need it if uh, they tried to filter out those who 
don't need it. And Tony says, how are the precious precious civil service uh, maintaining that that's the situation? Like most other things, that they've handed it over to, or they could have handed it over to revenue as they did in the past. And I suspect it would be a simple matter of filtering out anyone on a tax code that indicates earnings over 80 or 100,000 a year and exclude them from the scheme. Uh, John in Navin uh, says it's a pity that there wasn't money for the road in Dunmo. It's uh, destroying good land. Uh, somebody else in touch with us about the VAT rate uh, in uh, some of uh, the countries uh, where it is higher uh, in Hungary for example uh, but uh, they don't pay uh, the same as we do here in USC uh, and other taxes says our callers. Mary and Navin says imagine giving a pensioner 5 euro uh, of an increase. What would 5 euro buy you says Mary in Navin. Uh, thanks uh, for that uh, Mary. I think you'd get a lot of gobstoppers for 5 euro Mary but I'm not absolutely sure but thank you indeed for texting us today. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Drug use and drug selling by young people from disadvantaged areas is not a new thing, Taoiseach. But over the last couple of years, this, this has increased and has spiked. Young people are being targeted by older experienced drug dealers to sell and deliver drugs. Children are being groomed, coerced by unscrupulous drug dealers who are attracted by the flashy cars, the new runners, the few bob in their pockets and the status of being considered a so-called somebody's. But these criminals are nobody's. They groom our children, they suck the lifeblood from our communities and they offer nothing in return. And why we also need to examine the underlying reasons why children are uh, attracted to this lifestyle, such as poverty, we as legislators need to put things in place that will make it harder for these criminals to operate. This bill means that the prosecutor need not prove that the drug is a controlled drug, nor prove that the person being prosecuted knew that the child was was a child, irrespective of the quantity of drugs involved thus closing any loopholes that the criminals may be exploiting at present. This bill will make it a standalone event for adults to use children for the sale and distribution of drugs. It will make it easier for the guards to press charge against these adult criminals. Our communities have enough. That's Sinn Féin's Mark Ward introducing legislation in the Dáil yesterday to shore up loopholes uh, that drug dealers are taking advantage of. He introduced that legislation along with his colleagues Denise Mitchell and Martin Kenny. Martin Kenny is Sinn Féin's spokesperson on justice and uh, equality and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, it's very obvious for drug dealers uh, if uh, they don't want to face big sanctions, even if uh, those who are peddling the drugs for them are, are caught. If you're under 18, it's a, a very different matter and it makes it very attractive for them to look at, at children to do their dirty work for them. It is indeed, and that's why we've brought forward this piece of legislation. It's only at first stage. It'll take a considerable amount of time on how we get it on the statute books, but we hope that we will have the cooperation of the government to do that. Basically, it's to make it a, a criminal offence for the coercion of a minor to... Uh, to cause a minor to be in possession of a controlled substance, be either selling drugs or storing drugs or moving drugs. Very often we see these criminal gangs in our inner city areas and our large towns and they use children sometimes as young as 12 and 13 years of age on bikes, sometimes going around uh, moving drugs or, or even distributing drugs for them. These children then get into a cycle where they become drug users themselves very quickly. And all the harm and all the, the difficulty that addiction brings with their lives, obviously, you know, it, 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 nothing else matters in life and it becomes the sole intention of everything that they do. Their possibility for education, their possibility for, for having any kind of a life after that is, is totally diminished. And that's why we feel that, you know, the, the, the 
very evil drug gangs that use children in this way need to be held to account for it and that the adults that are using them like that are the ones that need to be targeted and that's why we put forward this piece of legislation to try yeah, and do that. Well, uh, the lure of uh, the glamorous lifestyle, whether that's uh, designer uh, clothing, uh, tracksuits or gold chains or watches or whatever the case may be is undoubtedly attractive uh, to children but uh, as you say that really can be the beginning of the end for them when they enter into that cycle. Uh, Your legislation is not being opposed by the government. It's very similar to legislation in fact that Fianna Fáil brought forward back in 2019 isn't it? It would be similar yeah there's some small differences uh, but it, it is similar indeed. That's obviously the, the doll fell and that's no longer in place. And it hasn't been brought forward again since Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael went into government together. It hasn't been uh, brought forward. So we decided, look, it's, it's an issue mm. we, need to, we need to try and tackle. And that's why we brought forward this piece of legislation. Sure, but there is a, a consensus. Is there not a, a political consensus? Well, we hope there is, yeah. yeah. We mm-hmm. hope there is a political consensus around it and that we get to move forward as quickly as possible. And I think it's important to say as well, Michael, that you know, in particularly people often look at, at inner city areas in Dublin and you know, the real crime black spots where drugs are, are pandemic level. You know, it's really only a small percentage of the community there that are involved in this drugs trade and in the criminality. You know, there was a study done from uh, the University of Limerick by uh, Johnny, I think of his second name now. Connolly. Uh, Johnny, 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 Johnny Connolly. Yep. Johnny Connolly yep. is yep. right, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and he stated that, you know, less than 1% of people were involved in it and that the, the ordinary people in those communities who have to put up with this are the ones whose children get sucked into it and who's, who's you know, really we need to, to, to focus on being able to, to save these communities from these drug gangs. Mm. We're also, of course, getting a certain amount of criticism from some people who say that the war on drugs never worked and all that sort of thing. But that doesn't mean we stop trying. We have to do everything we can to ensure that we try and and curtail the supply of drugs, of dangerous, harmful substances that will destroy our children's lives. And we also have to look at having, uh, I think, a greater emphasis on the demand side as well. Why do people want drugs? What is the, like, all drugs are painkillers ultimately. Uh, it's, a, it's a symbol of our society that people feel them, that they are in so much distress and, and, and pain for whatever reason that they turn their, themselves to, to use illicit drugs for to try and uh, have a better, I suppose, sense of, of, of something in their lives when there's so much missing out of them. And that's a big societal issue that we need to tackle as well. Is that why people drink? It probably is, you know. I mean, alcohol is 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 considered to be as bad a drug as any other. <laughs> worse, wor- worse than a lot. And I think there's a lot of people who would tell you that they drink because they enjoy it. And I think there's a lot of people who tell you they take drugs because they enjoy it. That they don't have any pain in their life. It's an escape, you know. It's an escape from from uh, from many things, and it's it's also because they can get, you know, uh, I suppose. Um, a way of, 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 of leaving their troubles and their, their difficulties and parking them to one side and, mm. you know, to hell with it, we'll have a good time for a couple of hours. But the impact of that, while alcohol has, has of course, got its problems, and we have a huge difficulty with alcoholism and all the problems it causes, but, you know, the, the, the harder drugs, your, your cocaine, mm. your ecstasy, all of those, like, you're, you're in a different, different scenario there because people develop really, really bad psychotic episodes, you know, so many young people, particularly at a young age, when they get involved, even with cannabis, mm. you know, it, it develops further and it has a, a mind-altering effect, which okay. is permanent. And that's the problem. Some people would argue otherwise, uh, and depending of on course. the drugs, uh, and would argue that alcohol is the worst drug of, of all. And uh, there's uh, plenty of people who say they take drugs just for recreational reasons, uh, if uh, that's a phrase that can be used. But it, it basically means they just kick their shoes off and have the crack and, and relax for a, a little while, and that there's nothing wrong with that, and so they don't need. 
people telling them what to do and talking down to them. And if that's the view, let's say, of the majority of young people, surely they they can't all be wrong. Uh, you talked about the war on drugs and losing the war on drugs. Uh, the person uh, who spoke about that most recently was the minister who has responsibility for the implementation of uh, the national drug strategy, Frankie Fian, who was saying we have to stop treating this as a judicial problem and treating it as something that needs to be dealt with by the health yeah. service. What's your thoughts on that? Absolutely. I mean, we've long recognised, you know, the addiction is a medical problem that people people have, and they need to they need to get a medical intervention for for addiction. Alcohol is, as you say, as bad a drug as any of them. It's legal. People get addicted. When they get addicted, we have a, a huge uh, intervention there from the, the the medical profession. People go for treatment. There's all of that happening, and you know sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not because it's a very addictive drug for many people. But it's similar with regard to addicts that are addicted to other drugs, and sometimes our attitude toward people that get addicted can be very negative. And but that still doesn't change the reality that uh, there are very vindictive criminals out there that are making an awful lot of money for the sale of these drugs, mm. that these drugs are very, very dangerous. You know, uh, there's there's any amount of expert analysis from uh, various experts from all over the world and from Ireland, yeah. which, will, which will clearly show that, you know, the, the impact and the long-term impact of a lot of these drugs on the mental health of people is really, really serious. Well, it's why we have licensing laws as well in, in respect of child protection. Uh, you shouldn't be uh, sold alcohol if you're under 18. Most pubs won't sell alcohol to uh, children uh, o- over 18, for that matter, adults over 18 until they're 21 or 23 in some circumstances. And that's uh, because uh, people are looking out for others' well-being. Uh, but uh, in terms of usage uh, is it that if people are using drugs they're they're addicts because many of them would say that they're not uh, and they don't need help well probably uh, my, my most recent I think I think um, analysis of it suggested about about 20% of people for instance who would who would use cannabis quite regularly become addicted so 80% don't become addicted mm. but the 20% that do become addicted go down a very very dangerous route okay. and usually get into a situation where they use a lot uh, more serious drugs and often has a, have a life limiting outcome and a, you know and and a very bad outcome for all everyone mm. around them as well because it is a huge impact on their family and the whole their network of friends and everybody. So you, we know we recognise that a lot of people, that eighty percent who don't get addicted mm. can turn their life around and get away from it. But for those who do get addicted are they're they're in a in a very bad place. And that's why I think Is it that simple? Is it not that the eighty percent continue to use the drugs and they don't have problems? Uh some some mm. do continue yeah. to use drugs. And would it be a, would it be that the twenty percent who have problems would have problems of some sort anyway? If there wasn't cannabis available to them they may be uh, alcoholics or they may be cocaine maybe, addicts or maybe uh, they you know, be smoking opium or something possibly but I mean at the end of it all you know the the, the and I, I don't know I, I can only I can only talk from I suppose people that I know that have that I know that have been using cannabis for a lot of their time you know they're very irritable they're very difficult people to deal with they have you know while they're they may they say they can kick off their shoes and they have a relax for a couple of hours and everything is fine my, my, my experience of them is that, you know, it, it does have an effect on them that they may not recognise or may not want to face. 
And that's something I think as well that a lot of the experts will, will look at and say, look, you know, it it, it may be uh, said that people can just relax and it's fine. But the reality is that it does have an impact on them and on themselves, and particularly on, I think, their spouses and their children and other people around them that can find them very, very difficult to live with because of the the, um, the addictive nature mm. and, the, and, and the, the impact that it has on uh, their outlook on life as well, you know. Okay, tell us a, a little bit more about the legislation that Sinn Féin is proposing about coercing young people into selling drugs uh, for the dealers uh, who are obviously going to make uh, the money uh, and quite probably at uh, the cost of a young person's future. Uh, how would that work in practice? If a young person is caught with drugs, 15-year-old or whatever the case may yeah. be, uh, how, how do you link those drugs to whoever has coerced that young person to sell them? Well, that's the, that's the Gardaí's job is to try and, and, and find the evidence and to deal with that evidence. Sometimes that evidence is there, but uh, they're not able to, to make that link because there isn't a specific, uh, a specific uh, charge to be placed. And this will mean that there, that there will be uh, an amendment to the Drugs Act, the Misuse of Drugs Act 1977, to criminalise the act of causing or coercing a minor into selling drugs. Some of these minors are people that are uh, already have an addiction problem. It may be a minor addiction problem, and they're coerced into using into selling drugs or distributing drugs or holding drugs for the the criminal gangs. And uh, if that can be proven and that can be shown, that there will be uh, a case to be followed to the individual who done that, who themselves may not have been found to be in possession of any drugs. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's dealt with as a standalone uh, offence. If found guilty. Uh, if found guilty, uh, you've uh, no drugs in your possession. Um, there's no um, drugs uh, in your car, your house, your pockets, or whatever the case may be. But it's uh, contended that you uh, had the drugs, gave them to this young person to sell them on to somebody else. Uh, h- how would that be dealt with uh, in the courts? Uh, what kind of sanction would there be for such an offence? Well, they'd be they'd be if found guilty under the under the section they're liable to an indictment or an imprisonment term not exceeding 10 years. That would be the maximum. But it would be a circuit court offence. So it would be an offence which would be quite serious. They would, I expect they'd be getting a, a prison term of some amount, maybe up to, up to well, as we say, the maximum is 10 years. That would be a very, very serious offence. I imagine in, in, in small cases, they'd be looking at going to prison for some length of time, probably a year or two. Okay. Interesting stuff. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, once again uh, this morning. That's uh, Martin Kenny, uh, TD for Sligo Leitrim, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on justice. Michael Reed on LMFM. Paddy Duffy texting the programme today saying Albert Einstein is credited with saying we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking that we used when we created them. Politicians take note, says Paddy, although I'm not really sure. Uh, like, what would Albert Einstein know about anything, Paddy? Uh, James Andrade says in relation to the hard times uh, that we're in and what is uh, to come, people who try to keep up with the Joneses is one thing, but trying to overtake them on the hill is complete lunacy. People have lost the run of for themselves altogether says James thank you as well for your text to the programme today now the Russians are coming uh, it really is very serious isn't it uh, not just what's happening in the Ukraine uh, but what's going to happen off uh, the southwest coast of Ireland and these live fire missile trials uh, I think the most worrying thing about it is apart from uh, the Russians firing off uh, these missiles and rockets and bombs or whatever way you would describe them is uh, the fishermen who are going to 
uh, go down and protest in the same waterways uh, and hopefully they're not putting themselves in harm's way. Uh, and of course it is linked to what's happening in the Ukraine and a lot of people are saying that what's happening in the Ukraine is because uh, of uh, how Russia is objecting to the Ukraine's wish to join NATO. I'm saying the Ukraine can do whatever their people and government decide to do, but countries that have joined, you've talked about the NATO expansion. I'm talking about countries who decided to join it, and we must respect their decisions. Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, all those countries have very, very good reasons uh, to be uh, in, in military alliances. If that's their wish, we are not in military alliances. But, where we're, but don't confuse military neutrality with, being, with taking no sides when there's a clear question of right and wrong. So if you have a country like Ukraine, proud country with a proud history, with tanks on its border from Russia, poised to act. No, no right-minded person can be neutral. I mean, if you're for democracy uh, and for countries' uh, self-determination, self-determination of peoples, but not in Ukraine, then some, you're not for democracy and self-determination. So there's no neutrality there, and there's no impinging whatsoever on a military neutrality. We're not, the British are sending weapons, etc. Ireland is not doing that. But we certainly aren't taking a stand in international bodies. Primarily, it has to be said, at the, at the European Council, uh, where the teachers took a very, very strong uh, stand in relation to this. Local TD Thomas Byrne speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday, the Minister for European Affairs, was saying that Ireland is neutral in all of this. But in line with what the Taoiseach has been saying about Ukraine, there's a whole of government support for the Ukraine. Minister, Minister Coveney obviously was discussing this issue, made clear his um, uh, rejection of what Russia is doing in, in the, our exclusive economic zone. Uh, the European Council decided with the Taoiseach there in December that any action from Russia would result in massive consequences. But the truth is that the conflict, uh, the potential for conflict here is having a hugely destabilising uh, effect right around the world, particularly in relation to fuel prices. And the deputies rightly, rightly raised the, the, the cost of fertiliser. It's a huge issue. But one of the biggest components of fertiliser, or one of the biggest items you need to create fertiliser, is, of course, natural gas. And the price of natural gas is, is going up and up and up. Um, and one of the current reasons for that, of course, is the potential for conflict uh, and our dependence on Russian gas. And actually, that moves on to another point, then, that one of the ways to avoid uh, those type of price increases is what Deputy Leiden advocates for, is to rapidly check change uh, to renewable energy. That's, that's the way out of this. Um, but at the moment, this is, a, this is a real problem. It'll be a problem for the people of Ukraine, the you know, Russian families who have d- dead soldiers if they go. That's, that's the, the, the reality as well. Uh, but it'll be a problem from a refugee point of view. It'll be a problem from a, a prices point of view for consumer goods and, and food in particular. Uh, this is a huge crisis, and Ireland will be doing everything it can diplomatically. In, long, uh, in accordance with that proud tradition that everybody, I think, has referenced here of our diplomatic efforts around the world, uh, we're one part of this. But we certainly support the rights of of anyone to defend themselves. Um, and and they are entitled to do that. That's the Minister for European Affairs, Thomas Byrne, speaking in the Dáil yesterday. Now, if you don't like conflict, uh, maybe the Dáil Chamber isn't the best place to be. Money back into renters' pockets by way of a tax rebate. Do that. And a freeze for three years on rents. Do that. And then we might believe, and more importantly, generation rent and renters might believe that you finally get it. You said to Deputy, you say that you'll finally get it. You paint a narrative in terms of me 
of being divorced from reality and all of that. Yeah, okay. I just want to say to you, Deputy, my background and where I grew up and what we had to put up with was far different to yours. Okay? I just want to make this point. I didn't, I didn't interrupt you. Interruption, please. Don't you dare lecture me. Okay? I understand the realities of life as well as anybody else in this house. And I don't intend to understand it more. But I know a thing or two about people being in difficulty and challenging in their early lives in terms of cost of living and so on, and in terms of backgrounds. And I'm saying to you that the most comprehensive solutions that have ever been tried have been adopted by this government in Housing for All. Now, we need cooperation across the board at every level. And if politicians really believe it is the crisis, then they should behave accordingly. And stop objecting uh, in a serial manner, in a serial manner, to housing project after housing project because it doesn't fit some ideological framework. The gloves were off once again in what has become a now regular spat between uh, the leaders of Sinn Féin and uh, Fianna Fáil, Taoiseach Micheál Martin and Mary Lou MacDonald at each other's throats in the doll yesterday. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.